1: This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Mark Twitchell? Mark Twitchell was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on July 4, 1979. He enrolled in the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. In 2000, he graduated with a degree in radio and television arts. He had aspirations of being a filmmaker who worked on large scale productions. Mark married an American woman and moved to Illinois. The couple divorced in 2004. By 2008, Mark was back in Edmonton and was newly married. He and his wife were not getting along too well. They were sleeping in separate rooms. Mark was having an affair with his old girlfriend. He was also lying to his wife about his employment status. He said that he had a job, but in reality, he was living off investors in his film business. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. In October 2008, a 33-year-old man named Gilles Tetro was on the dating site Plenty of Fish when he started communicating with someone who he believed was an attractive woman named Sheena. In reality, it was Mark Twitchell. Mark invited the man to meet him. He supplied him with directions to a two-car garage that he had rented. Gilles showed up and entered the garage. Mark was wearing a black and gold painted hockey mask and attacked him with a stun baton. The man managed to escape after a terrifying struggle. He made his way to his vehicle and drove away. Oddly, he decided not to contact the police. He said he didn't contact them because he thought it was a robbery and he was embarrassed. Perhaps he forgot that robbery was a crime. Interestingly, even though the date facilitated by Plenty of Fish involved a stun baton and almost being killed, it still represented a better-than-average dating experience for the website. A few weeks later, still in October 2008, Mark again impersonated a woman on the website, Bunny of Fish. This time, he managed to lure a 38-year-old man named John Brian Altinger to the garage. John had his suspicions about the woman on the website. He was so concerned that he sent the directions that Mark provided him to the garage to his friends. This way, if he disappeared, they would have a place to start looking for him. After John arrived to the garage in his red Mazda, Mark attacked him with a pipe and stabbed him with a knife. After John was dead, Mark cut his body into pieces, burned some of it, and then placed his remains in garbage bags. He eventually dumped the bags into a sewer through a manhole. After the murder, Mark transmitted emails to John's friends, which were made to look like they came from John. The emails said that John met up with the woman, and they went on an extended vacation to Costa Rica. Mark also sent a resignation letter by email to John's employer, but he did not provide the employer a place to send John's final paycheck. John's friends grew suspicious and were concerned for him. They broke into his condominium and located his passport, something he would have needed to take a trip to Costa Rica. In addition, there were dirty dishes in the condominium, and there was no evidence that he had packed anything in preparation for a journey. John's friends contacted the police who launched an investigation. The police followed the directions to the garage, which John had sent to his friends. This led the police to Mark Twitchell. Mark told the police that he never met John and he did not know anything about a red Mazda. He said that he used the garage to record films. He gave the police permission to search the garage, which they did. They thought the setup was strange, but they didn't notice anything particularly incriminating. Mark was interviewed He talked a lot about his journey as a filmmaker. He told them about a Star Wars fan film he had made and a film about a serial killer who lured victims back to a garage. The film was called House of Cards. The police let Mark go, but they were a little curious about the whole serial killer film endeavor. The police visited the garage again. Mark casually mentioned something that he left out of the first interview. He said that he had met John sometime prior to his disappearance. John was driving a red Mazda. Out of the blue, John offered to sell the Mazda to Mark for $40. Mark purchased the vehicle because it was a great deal. The police were now confident that Mark had murdered John. They found John's blood in the red Mazda. They searched Mark's car and found a knife with blood on it and a laptop computer. They searched Mark's garage again. This time, they found part of a tooth belonging to John. From the laptop, the police were able to recover a deleted file titled SK Confessions. They believed SK stood for Serial Killer, although in this case, Substandard Killer or Short-Sighted Killer would have been equally as fitting. The file contained Mark's journey on his way to becoming a serial killer. It appears as though this account is part fiction and part reality. Several elements of the story align with events that actually occurred. On October 31, 2008, Mark was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. At first, he wouldn't talk to the police. After a year and a half in custody, he supplied the police with the location of John's remains. During his trial, Mark said that he wrote the document SK Confessions and that he killed John. He said it was in self-defense. Essentially, this was Mark's story. He wanted to generate public interest in his film project, so he lured men to his garage to attack them. He wasn't trying to kill them. It was really just a prank. No harm was intended. He wanted them to report their stories to the news. They needed to be alive to do that. He pulled the prank on the first man, and no one died. When he attacked John, the situation spiraled out of control because John was upset about being attacked. John became aggressive, and Mark was forced to defend himself. Mark knew how bad the situation looked, so he decided to dismember the body and dispose of it. If this is the best story that Mark could create to explain his behavior, then the reasons for his failure as a filmmaker are starting to come into focus. Mark was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. After his conviction, Mark was still facing an attempted murder charge stemming from the first attack, but the Crown decided there was no need to pursue the case because Mark was already serving the maximum possible sentence. Now moving to my analysis. Here are my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. There isn't really much question about the guilt of Mark Twitchell. Even if someone was to believe his self-defense story, Mark was in the commission of a felony when his victim died. He caused the situation to be dangerous. He provoked John. Either way, Mark is guilty of murder. His story about self-defense is actually a murder confession. Item number two, Mark's murder victim sent the directions for his date to his friends. If someone is this concerned about meeting someone who they encountered online, it's probably a good idea to avoid going on the date, or at least take some meaningful precautions. It seems as though John knew something strange was going on with the situation, but he just couldn't resist the opportunity to go on a date and potentially have sex. I think what happens sometimes with dating situations is that people get overfocused on the sexual component, like a person is having an internal dialogue with the logical part of their brain. Their brain is saying, well, with this date that's coming up, you could get sex or you could be murdered. And the person responds, tell me more about the first option. Item number three is what the SK Confessions document tells us about Mark's personality and motives. This 42-page document was the most significant piece of evidence in the case against Mark. In this document, Mark talked about how he targeted men because it would be easy to lure them in with the promise of sex. He claimed to be in the business of murder only for the money. He carefully described how he rented the garage, purchased weapons, and set up online dating accounts. Mark described the first attack and how he thought he would be arrested after the man escaped. Then he wrote a long description about his relationship with an old girlfriend. After this, Mark talked about the murder he committed. He described his actions in a matter-of-fact manner, including the details about dismembering the body. Mark said that after the murder, he felt stronger and above other people. He was the proud owner of a very dark secret. On the morning of August 1, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous
0: beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to Stop the Killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality.
1: That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you
0: how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I could no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.
1: The overall sense from the document was that Mark really didn't have any empathy for human beings. Everything was about his feelings, how he was transforming into a serial killer, and how he had become special. Mark was grandiose, arrogant, callous, and had no remorse. Item number four is about what can be learned from another document found on Mark's computer titled Profile of a Psychopath. This one was not used against him in court, but it is very revealing. In this seven-page document, Mark attempts to assess his own personality here is a summary of the document. He said that this was not a clinical diagnosis, rather a case study. He was different than most people and had always been different. Mark said that he was a psychopath, but then he noted a few ways where he was different than many psychopaths. For example, he didn't cheat family or friends, he didn't hurt animals, he was high functioning, and he did not use drugs. Mark then described how he was like a psychopath He was a pathological liar. He had been lying from an early age and lied to everybody in his life, often for no reason at all. And he had trouble keeping a job, typically getting fired or quitting within four months of being hired. Mark provided details about how he cheated investors out of money so he could avoid working. He described how he was cheating on his wife simply for the thrill of it, not because he was feeling neglected or entitled. Despite his efforts to hide his cheating, his wife knew that something was going on. The pair was in couples counseling, but Mark believed this was a waste of time because the therapist emphasized sharing feelings. Mark felt like a fake during these counseling sessions. Mark knew that he had a lack of empathy. He always had to pretend to be more social than he was, and he had to work to hide his dark side. He said that killing people out of revenge was something he wanted to do, but he didn't think it made sense considering the going to prison part. He thought that making movies about serial killers would satisfy his urge to kill and could earn him some money. It sounded like he didn't intend on becoming a serial killer. He was trying to get through his life without committing murder. Ultimately, he of course failed in this regard. This document was interesting in that Mark actually seemed to have a good deal of insight and clearly looked into information about psychopathy. He wrote in an articulate way and appeared to be straightforward about a number of his negative characteristics. Mark was not as narcissistic as most aspiring serial killers. For example, many serial killers think that they are superior intellectually and other people just can't keep up. Mark did not think this way. He acknowledged that people were able to figure out what he was doing. He needed to be careful to disguise his bad behaviors. In the document, Mark was nihilistic and did not focus on redemption. It wasn't about him changing. It was about him adapting to who he was. Like this was the hand that he was dealt, and he was going to have to play it. There is this sense after reading this document that Mark was trying not to be a killer. He was trying to adapt to the personality that he had. He did the math and realized that not killing was a better option. He could get more of what he wanted by avoiding homicide. There was an internal struggle. His dark side pushed him toward murder, but his practical side wanted to stay out of prison. I think this case exemplifies the dangers of a persistent negative desire. Even after Mark performed the calculations and realized that he should not kill, he was still unable to resist the urge. Item number five, the case of Mark Twitchell is often connected to the fictional serial killer Dexter Morgan. Mark said that he was a big fan of Dexter. It seems clear that there are some similarities between these two figures. Like Dexter, Mark had a kill table, plastic sheets, and a game processing kit. Both figures were conflicted about being a killer, and both of them were articulate. They explained their own feelings with some level of insight, and appeared to have an interest in philosophy. As far as differences, Dexter was gainfully employed, He was not driven by a desire for sexual domination. Mark said his motivation was to gain money, but it's more likely that he had a traditional serial killer motivation. Dexter demonstrated remorse. He escaped responsibility for his crimes despite having connections to some of the victims, and he planned his crimes much more carefully than Mark did. Looking at their personalities, Dexter was high in openness to experience, high in conscientiousness, low in extroversion, low in agreeableness, and had mid-range neuroticism. Mark appears to have the same profile, except he was low in conscientiousness and had a little bit higher level of extroversion. For example, he was more talkative. One theory in this case is that Mark Twitchell was inspired to be a killer by Dexter Morgan. Like maybe by watching Dexter on TV, Mark chose to behave in the way that he did. Like without Dexter, Mark would not have been a killer. I think it's much more likely that Mark had psychopathic characteristics and was looking for a role model who aligned with his desires. He had these urges long before he ever saw Dexter. Dexter is a popular character. He was designed to make serial killing appear less objectionable, like he only targeted people who had done something bad. It was a way to make a serial killer The hero of a series without making people disgusted. It makes sense that Mark would identify with Dexter. Perhaps he thought that if he could become like Dexter, he would be less objectionable himself and could be accepted by society. Now, moving to my final thoughts. Mark Twitchell knew that he was interested in homicide, and he was aware that most people did not share his desire. He wanted to satisfy his urges. He even tried starting a filmmaking business and recorded a film about serial killing. Ultimately, his insight was not enough to prevent him from giving in to his desires. This case exemplifies that, even though insight is important, some people commit crimes knowing full well what led them to that place and in full appreciation of the consequences. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.
0: Allegedly is back for Season 2, A New Crime Every Time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season 2's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult, a case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her, a landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner, an act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos, and a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.